thank you. Thanks. That's right. Small crowd. It's, I feel silly sitting behind this big table, but I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, as uh, was mentioned, this is the Worlds of Sound, the book. You were just watching a, a portion of a film that was made based on the book that uh, was shown on the Smithsonian Channel. I think they. Uh, I think a few people in the world get the Smithsonian Channel. It's. Uh, I, I, it's available, I think, uh, I think it's like channel 833 on the dial, but you can get it and I think they're even still showing that, that program uh, occasionally because sometimes people will come up to me and say, weren't you that guy talking about that crazy guy, Moses Ash. Um, Moses Ash was truly an inspirational man. Uh, just to tell you a little briefly about him, he was the son of the novelist Sholemash, some of you may have heard of, was a Yiddish writer. He wrote in Yiddish. He uh, came originally from Eastern Europe, uh, was hired by a newspaper called The Forward, which was a radical paper that was published in Yiddish. It still comes out, but it's now in English uh, and Yiddish, but originally was Yiddish only. And they hired Sholemash around 1910. Uh, to come to the United States and be a political columnist. He, he quickly established himself also as a playwright. And uh, his children followed uh, a few years later. Mo was born in 1905. Uh, he came here when he was 12 years old. Uh, and the first thing he became interested in was radio. And at the time, radio was kind of like the Internet in the sense that uh, it was a way for people to speak in real time across the world uncensored by big corporations because you could build your own radio set and just talk just like you can create a blog or you know and this was terrifically exciting to Mo he was very much interested in unfettered speech of all kinds and he believed that every that the people owned their own expression these were kind of radical ideas so that he would often say to me things like, the airwaves are owned by the American people. And he got annoyed when the FCC tried to regulate frequencies. He thought all frequencies should be free, just like all people should be free. And it is, when you start to think about it, a radical notion that all sound deserves to be documented and should be freely available. He believed in copyright and making money to a certain extent, but, but he uh, kind of had a sort of what nowadays would be called a long tail vision. He preferred things that sold extremely poorly over a long period of time. He said to me often, I don't want to hit record because that would be too difficult to deal with. So he, I, I never forget once going into the office and he, and he said, I'm issuing volume two of Kenyan Mountain Music. Volume one didn't sell at all. And he was, that was one of the happiest <laughs> moments that I, that I can recall. Uh, uh, he was particularly proud. He had a sort, certain uh, Eastern European attitude of, you know, nothing made him happier than something that didn't sell. Uh, and, and he had a pretty good idea of what would sell in small numbers over time. And so that is kind of how he supported himself. But anyway, to get back to his story, he uh, worked in radio, and from radio he went into public address systems. He did the sound design for a Broadway show called Hell's a Poppin'. 
it was the first show that had live audience noise as part of the program so that the audience actually became part of the show uh, and this was a radical notion for its time he also uh, did the original sound for the first Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, sound trucks that went around promoting we have a picture of one of them in here the American Labor Party caravan he, w he provided the sound for that um, and he had a company that that did that and through his father he was hired to work for a radio station called WEVD which stood for Eugene V. Debs uh, famous socialist and uh, he became their director and as such uh, opened a little recording studio and it was a very radical thing because his recording studio consisted of a single room and the first thing that happened when you walked in the door was you walked into the studio he actually divided the room into quarters so that he built a divider it was a room about maybe you know the size of this area of this store and the one quarter of it was the recording studio and on the wall was the door so you walked in and the first thing you were was in the studio you can imagine at the time if you wanted to make a record you'd have to go to a, a company executive and you convince them they wanted to record with mo he was always there and if you wanted to make a record you walked in the door uh... this began in nineteen thirty nine and and his log show that he recorded people like james p johnson and mary lou williams these were jazz musicians of that period pete seeger woody guthrie he recorded them any time day or night they would come in he would put an acetate disc down and start recording and he never interfered with what they did he never told them what to play unlike uh... commercial labels often did so young and so critical anyway uh... <laughs> uh... anyway uh... he never told anyone what to do and mary lou williams said that if you just burped he would record it and literally he would just run machine and um, famous story is Woody Guthrie heard about Mo and wanted to make a record uh, nobody else in the commercial record business would make a record of him he had recorded a uh, uh, six records for RCA Victor but they were so unsuccessful they were immediately put out of print so he came to see Mo Mo didn't know who he was Woody Guthrie walks in and says I'm Woody Guthrie Moses Ash said so what <laughs> and uh, from there a great friendship was born uh, and not only did he record one day when uh, Guthrie was in the Merchant Marines he was on leave he came in he recorded over a hundred songs in one day uh, and Mo just kept putting acetate discs down and he kept recording songs for that entire day of that of that session only about three records were actually commercially produced so again Mo's although he was running a commercial company he didn't necessarily just record what he thought he could sell he recorded it all and he always said that as long as the artist didn't object to it there was no such thing as a mistake in other words if a person forgot a lyric or played the guitar out of tune or or dropped the guitar or whatever as long as the artist felt that that was a finished performance that was a real performance and it deserved to be documented so um, 
Mo supported Woody Guthrie for years, even after Guthrie became too ill to perform. He continued to pay him. He kept his records in print at a time when they weren't selling at all. And in the folk revival, um, when suddenly Woody Guthrie was popular, RCA Records threatened to sue Mo because, as I said, Woody Guthrie had recorded one album for RCA called Dust Bowl Ballads. It now is pretty famous, but at the time it didn't sell at all. And um, RCA put it out of print, so Woody Guthrie said to Mo, would you please reprint it? I'd like to you know, have it available. So Mo said, sure. He didn't think about RCA owning the copyright. He felt that if they put it out of print, they didn't have any rights to it any further. It made perfect sense to him. Uh, and then in 1961, RCA, at the height of the folk revival, wrote Mo a letter saying, you know, we're going to sue you because you put this out. And Mo wrote them back and basically told them, you know, for years when you didn't care, I kept this in print and kept paying Woody Guthrie and he asked me, the artist asked me to put this out and you wouldn't do it. And he even had the letter from RCA telling Woody Guthrie, we won't reissue this because it's not popular enough. And they did, they, apparently that was compelling enough to them that they did not sue him. And uh, to this day, uh, Folkways has the Dust Bowl ballads out. RCA issued their own version as well. But, um, when it, when it became popular. But Mo didn't really care whether it was popular. He, he even hired Woody Guthrie, uh, uh, this was kind of a ruse to give him money, he hired him to review every record he put out. And Mo put out classical music. And in the 40s, he put out a, a wide variety of things. Langston Hughes reading his poetry, first spoken word uh, poetry by African-American authors. He was very supportive of African-American song and history. Uh, he put out classical music, he put out early John Cage, and Woody Guthrie wrote, hand-wrote reviews of all of them, and Mo paid him to do that, and they're in the files, and you can go read them in the, uh, in the archives. He didn't do anything with the reviews, it just was a way to give Woody Guthrie money. He also commissioned Woody Guthrie to write a series of songs about Sacco and Vanzetti, which became an album. Uh, because Mo was interested in that, and so he paid him to go to Boston to actually do that. Another artist who Mo discovered uh, was Lead Belly, who uh, many of you probably heard of, was a uh, prisoner who was discovered by Alan and John Lomax in, in prison. They hired him to be their driver. They didn't like to actually admit that, but he actually was kind of a servant slash driver for them. Brought him north and promoted him as uh, there were headlines like um, convicted felon to give concert or you know uh, homicidal hero to perform tonight I mean they really promoted him in a kind of a pretty crass way they even made a newsreel from the March of Time where they had him dressed in overalls on a bowl on a bale of cotton uh, and the first um, album that came out on a, a label called Musicraft, uh, which is featured in this book also, uh, had, had was called Sinful Songs, Negro Sinful Songs, and had a picture of cotton pickers on the cover. That was how it was presented. Mo always thought of Lead Belly as being a very, very distinguished musician. He was always immaculately dressed. He was very highly educated. He was not 
at all the image that the Lomaxes presented. So the first albums that uh, Mo put out, it was called Work Songs of the USA, was he always tried to promote him with dignity. The other thing he put out was a record of children's songs. And this got a lot of press because, you know, here was this convicted murderer, supposedly, who uh, was recording children's material. But Mo, Mo saw that he had terrific rapport with children and actually encouraged him to record those songs. And they became actually very popular. Uh, for Mo, they were a big hit. The album of children's song actually sold 100 sets in its first three years. So you can tell that for Moses Ash, again, a hundred albums selling over three years was preferable to thousands of albums selling at one time. He also allowed the artists to decorate the albums the way they wanted. This is a cover that Woody Guthrie designed and drew. No other commercial label at that time would let an artist do that. Um, but he, that was the way Mo was. He believed in the artist determining not only what was on the record, but how it was presented. Well, in the late 40s, Moe actually started Folkways Records. He went bankrupt originally. He had this company called Ash Records, and then it was called Disc. And at Disc, he issued the very first live jazz recordings. Nobody else would issue them because there was audience noise. There was a man named Norman Grants who put on a concert at the Philharmonic Hall in San Francisco. It was called Jazz at the Philharmonic. Some of you may have heard of this series that became famous later on. Mo put this record out and it became a tremendous hit. Nobody else had faith that a live recording with audience noise that would appeal to people. They said, this is crazy. These are people just jamming on stage. It was, you know, with audience. And it really created the whole idea of a live album. Uh, it became a tremendous hit, but it was such a big hit that Mo actually went bankrupt. He couldn't keep up with uh, the demand. And this is another reason why he was always afraid of having hit records <laughs> thereafter. And he started Folkways with the express idea of not having hit records. And, and Norman Grants, of course, went on to found Verve Records on his own and, and became very well known for that. Uh, Folkways Records did record folk music. It recorded Pete Seeger at a time when Pete Seeger was blacklisted uh, and could not get any other work, Mo had him on a regular as an exclusive artist. And Pete Seeger told me that what he would do is he'd be walking in the streets of New, New York, he'd think of a song, and he'd say, hmm. And he'd go up to Mo's studio and record the song. Half an hour later, he'd be done, he'd leave. And this would happen irregularly over months, and then every now and then an album would come out. But, but basically, it was uh, kind of a collaboration between, but between Mo and Pete, but that Pete had the total freedom to go in and do whatever he wanted. Um, one of the famous albums they did together in the mid-50s was called The Goofing Off Suite, and that was a collection of instrumental pieces on the five-string banjo, and it's fair to say that that album heavily influenced people like, some of you may have heard of John Fahey, the guitarist who put out uh, albums through the Wyndham Hill people and all the idea of having an all instrumental album. Mo came up with the idea of doing a series of records called America's Favorite Ballads because Mo sold a lot of records to libraries and he knew that libraries liked to buy things in series. So they, uh, he encouraged Pete to do those albums. There were five of those. 
They were recently reissued by Smithsonian Folkways, and they also served as the basis for the Bruce Springsteen album, The Seeger Sessions, which some of you may be familiar with. They, he borrowed, borrowed, he copied shamelessly the arrangements of the songs from those, those records. And again, without Moe's support, Pete Seeger probably wouldn't have been able to make a living in the 50s because uh, nobody would touch his music or it was, you know, not only non-commercial, it was dangerous. Uh, was mentioned before, there, there, surprisingly, Moe didn't have very many run-ins with the FBI. There were a few run-ins. Uh, his partner was a woman named Marion Distler, who was definitely a communist, uh, but somehow she also somehow missed being called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, as many of Moe's artists were. Uh, the FBI only got suspicious when he put out a folk music of Yugoslavia record, but they, in the mid-50s they came and investigated him. Um, and he also, he also put out a record of uh, talking blues, and in the book uh, I quote from the, the file, let's see if I can find that real fast here, because it's kind of a funny thing they, they said in this thing. Oh, uh, this was from 1961, it was reported, the subject matter of these ballads ranges from the alleged problems of the downtrodden, suppressed Negro in the South, to the exploited coal miner in Illinois. One song is critical of Eisenhower, and that's all in capital letters, his cabinet and his administration. Another song opposed the use of the atom bomb. The record has strong overtones of the reported oppression of the worker by big business and government. I love that, reported oppression and the alleged problems of the downtrodden. Everyone knows the downtrodden exaggerate their problems. So, uh, but that, that was about it. He really didn't get into too much trouble, uh, surprisingly. And, and um, supposedly, Ash could always say that he was simply putting out what people, you know, again, he could sort of use as a protection that he didn't control the recording. He let whatever come out, come out. And he always said, I'm a documenter. He used to say that, you know, Woody Guthrie is the artist, I'm the pen. Uh, you know, that he was just the, the conduit for that. Of course, it's a little disingenuous, to say the least, but nonetheless, Somehow he got away with it, where others clearly didn't. A um, couple other, I mean, there's a lot of different things to talk about with Folkways, and depending what you are interested in, there's his association with Harry Smith, some people, the famous anthology of American folk music. Harry Smith was a visionary, crazy filmmaker slash collector of old records who came to Moe trying to sell his records because he was broke, and Moe said, no, 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 these, these are valuable recordings of American artists, and you know about them, and you should document them. And Harry Smith uh, actually camped out at the Folkways office, which again was one room, quarter of which was a, was a recording studio, and he spent several months putting together the anthology of American folk music, and many of the people on the anthology would, were uh, recorded in the 20s but were totally forgotten by the early 50s when the anthology came out. 
but later on became very important in the folk revival. People like Mississippi John Hurt, Tom Ashley, these were all people that were rediscovered thanks to being included on the anthology. Another funny thing about the anthology was, and again, if I can find this real fast, um, was that uh, he, to document the songs, Smith wrote a series of, they look like file cards. This was the notes that appeared with the original anthology. And they would have uh, these great headline descriptions of the songs, like uh, John Henry vows to defeat mechanization, questions captain, warn shaker and son, wife strong. You know, these sort of these great, my favorite was Froggy goes a, goes a courtin', which was, you know, nuptials of frog and mouse lead to general merriment. Uh, and so, but, but it, the fact that the anthology was so visionary was he didn't distinguish between white and black performers. There was no, the, everyone was, again, treated equally. So you'd have a Furry Lewis cut followed by a Carter family cut. He didn't make distinctions. He made distinctions around topics, but not around race or ethnicity. It was also the first, uh, it really launched the whole idea of reissues. And again, this was Moe's belief that when 78s were taken out of print, the, the companies that owned them no longer had rights to them. You'd be surprised to know that Sony I deal with Sony Music all the time. They claim they own the copyright still to the cylinder recordings from the 1880s. I say to them, "Fooey," <laughs> along with with, with Mo and and uh, uh, and uh, Harry Smith and Mo uh, got together very very well. Mo liked outliers. He liked people that were eccentric, and and Harry Smith fit that bill very well. There's um. Later on, he became a shaman in residence at uh, the Naropa Institute under Allen Ginsberg. He was very closely friend. And this picture of Harry Smith kind of indicates this was when he was still actually in pretty good shape. By the time I was working for Folkways, uh, Harry would come up. This is Mo with Allen Ginsberg, by the way, the other picture here. Harry was the kind of guy that if you saw him walking towards you on the street, first of all, you smelled him first. But second of all, you would cross the street very quickly. I mean, to see the visionary in him was quite amazing. And Mo had that ability. This is also another thing that's in the archives. It's one of my favorite things. Uh, Harry Smith owed money to somebody and referred him to Mo to try to collect. And the guy wrote Mo a series of postcards asking for the money. And they, but again, to read them, you had to read the postcards in sequence. <laughs> So he mailed five postcards, the sequence of which was asking him for money. So it says, Dear Mr. Ash, as I financed Harry Smith's Oklahoma trip, plane tickets and expenses, and carried him five months last year, it would be polite for me to use with your okay for the soundtrack of my film a few hundred feet of tape as it was ostensibly created for this purpose. <laughs> Harry made me spend over $6,000 last year on him, that he gave me nothing in return. If necessary, I will have, mm, I can't read that, Javits and Javits call you, second explain it greater detail, the extent of this situation. However, I ask little from you but the use of a too short bit of singing. Uh, Harry recorded outside a ceremony, he has greater clarity, uh, though no authenticity, sincerely. 
And I guess he did give him that permission to use that. So that uh, the relationship of eventually Harry Smith was given a Grammy for his contribution uh, to uh, to American music and and was really a visionary uh, person. And Mo recognized that and kept the anthology in print for years and years and years, despite various labels at various times saying they were going to sue him. My favorite story. Well, there are many favorite stories that I have of Mo. One, uh, he believed all sound, again, was worth documenting. And, and in the 1951, the Museum of Natural History in New York came to him and said, we want to do an exhibit on the rainforest, and we'd like you to create a soundtrack for it. This was quite a, nowadays, when we go to museums, we're quite used to the idea of having sound and videos and all kinds of stuff. But at the time, it was a radical idea to have a soundtrack for a museum exhibit. Well, Mo was broke, so he said, sure, I'll do it. And then he went home to Brooklyn and said, how am I going to make a recording of the rainforest? I've never been there, and I have no money to go there. So he thought about this for a while, and then he thought of the Bronx Zoo. So he had a friend named Peter Bartok, who was the son of Bela Bartok, and the two of them went up to the Bronx Zoo, and they met with the people at the zoo, and they said, well, what kind of animals live in the rainforest? And they said, well, there, there are these kind of birds, and, the, and they went around and recorded them all. And then Mo and Peter sat down and said, well, how are we going to arrange this? And they thought, we'll make a day in the rainforest. We'll start in the morning, these animals make these noises, and we'll go all through the day and document that. And then, but then they had talked to a number of people and they said the most distinct thing about the rainforest is the rain itself. It sounds different than rain you hear in New York City. It's a quite a distinctive sound. And again, they were stumped. How were they going to, they couldn't go to the zoo to record rainforest rain. So eventually Peter came up with the idea of putting some wet towels at the bottom of Moe's shower and they actually directed the shower head in such a way and they got a pretty good sound out of it. And they, they edited this whole thing together, took it back to the museum. The museum listened. They said, this is wonderful. This is really terrific. And then they said, but you're missing the crickets. There are no rainforest crickets on this. And Peter said, that's no problem. I live in Connecticut. Tonight I'll just go out and record some crickets, and we'll mix it into the, into the recording. Well, the big day came. The museum opened and it was just people were just in awe people were amazed and everyone was congratulating Mo and the museum and they were all very happy about it till one one scientist came forward at the end of uh, the presentation and said this is a fraud this is not a real recording and they said well why what's what's the matter with he goes those are not rainforest crickets those are Connecticut crickets he recognized that they were the wrong kind Nonetheless, the record is still in print and available. Mo also put out a lot of other records. Uh, Tree Frogs was a big seller for him. Sounds of Animals. He had a, there was a fella named Weyburn Wright who wrote to Mo and said, I record old uh, locomotives, steam locomotives, that are, and they're all going out of service. And I think it would be a service if you put them on record. And he did. He did five volumes of steam locomotive sounds, Sounds of the Junkyard, Sounds of the Office. He has a 50s office if you want to relive your feelings of typewriters and, and the sounds from that time. And again, all sound being worthy of preserving. Mo used to say when asked why he kept all the records in print, even the ones that didn't sell, his favorite, this was a favorite quote of his, was you don't remove the letter J 
from the dictionary simply because it's used less than the other letters. That, that was his philosophy in a nutshell, that every letter had its right to be there and so should be used. Um, he also said to me, notably, stereo is a lie. Uh, that was because in the 50s when stereo first came out they boosted certain sounds and again Mo was a believer in flat sound he said you should record the person exactly the way they sound you shouldn't enhance the sound you shouldn't change the sound of course he did put out records in quadraphonic and I can never figure out the there were a lot of contradictions in what he said but he 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 did say to me stereo is a lie being young, I said to him, well, all recording is a lie. I mean, if the person's not there, right, it's a translation. And he had a whole stack of African sculptures behind him. He grabbed one and threw it at me as hard as he could, and he didn't talk to me for about a month after that. But so he had certain beliefs that he, that he followed, but, but within that belief, he was basically trying to collect every sound. And... Um, just to conclude, I guess I'll tell you my other favorite Mo story, which I did find this in the archive, so I know it's true. There, at one time, he w wanted to put out, yet, like I said, he sold a lot of records to libraries. And he had got a request for national anthems. You know, kids would come into the library and they went, what's the national anthem of Sweden? What's the... So he decided to put out a record of national anthems, and he wrote all the countries around the world. And, Everybody sent him the national anthem, but he couldn't get a recording of the American national anthem. There was no official recording. So, Mo being Mo, he, he thought to himself, well, you know, they play that at baseball games. So, he turned on the radio one day for a Yankees game and recorded the Marine Band playing uh, the national anthem. And so he put that out on the record with all the other national anthems. Well, he gets a letter from the Yankees. The Yankees say, you know, you recorded our copyright broadcast of the national anthem and we want to be recompensed for it. Mo wrote them back a letter. It was hand typed. It's in the archive. It said, Dear Yankees, <laughs> the airwaves are owned by the American people. The Marine Band is employed by the American people. The national anthem is the property of the American people. So therefore I say to you, fuck you. <laughs> and there's no evidence in the file of any follow-up or any lawsuit afterwards. So that's, that's Moses Ash. So. Um, I guess if anyone has any questions or about the book or so about how Mo. did you get to work with him or know him? Well, that that's an interesting thing. Folkways Records was unusual in many ways, uh, and one way it was unusual is right on the label. I don't know if you can see this. Maybe you can see these labels. But right on the label is the address. Most record companies, you know, if you want to try to find them, you don't know how to find them. Mo had always put the address right on the label. So I had gotten a grant to record English concertina players, very, very popular subject. A lot of record companies were clamoring for these tapes. And uh, I was 18 years old. I got a grant to do this. And I went and made the recordings, and I sent them to, a, at that time, there was a couple of folk music labels like Rounder and Philo and whatnot.
And they all said, well, this isn't really what we think of as folk music. It was, you know, old English people playing things like um, Gilbert and Sullivan and whatnot on the concertina. So I sent it to Mo, and I heard nothing. So being young, I went, I had the address. So I went up to see him demanding my tapes back. And at this time, Mo had already had several heart attacks. He was pretty much deaf. I was still running the label, though, and, and would run it for another 12, 14 years till his death. But anyway, he, he said, okay, I'll get the tapes, you know, and he went back, and I hear all kinds of shuffling and rumbling in the back room. And then he comes out and he goes, wait a minute, I want to put this out. So, uh, so then it came out three months later, and from there, I, whatever I wanted, pretty much, he would put out. Occasionally, he would comment on it, but uh, he didn't usually. Once, he always, as was said in the documentary, Mo had an ability, because he gave you freedom, to get people of all types to work for him. Allen Ginsberg did recordings for him. Uh, Sam Charters, a blues collector, was one of his longtime collaborators. And he really basically, his business was based on trust and the fact that he could convince, because you knew he, he would treat the product with dignity and he would let you do what you wanted to do. So basically, um, that's how we worked. We, I would send them say, a tape. Very early on, I learned that if I typed the notes neatly, he would just reproduce them from my typewriter. So I started to purposely mark them up in pencil so you'd have to typeset them. You know, you, you learn tricks to kind of get him to, to do slightly better work. But, um, and if you asked him why you didn't advertise your records, he said, well, I can't favor one record over another. It would be, you know, that would be unfair. And since all records are equal, he treated them equally in the sense that he wouldn't advertise Pete Seeger, but he wouldn't advertise me either. So it was fair <laughs> in that sense. And he never cared that the records didn't sell in any, you know, so he never... How long did he live after you met him in 18... I met him in 1975, and he lived till 86. So I guess another 11 years. And we kept, kept working together pretty much through, through his... And, you know, he, again, was very, very determined. He, he had offers to sell the label, but he, would, he wouldn't sell it unless they would guarantee to keep everything in print. And eventually, um, the only people that could really take it over were the Smithsonian. And they've been pretty good about his legacy. For example, they put out an 11-volume set of uh, Indonesian music with no gamelan on it, only the best-known Indonesian music. So, again, that, that's the perfect example of what Mo would have done you know, put out the least popular music from an area, or the least known, because after all, the well-known is already available. And I used to say to him, why does the catalog, he numbered the records, but he left holes, so like it would be 3517, 3519, 3523. I said, what are the holes for? And he said, that's for the stuff I haven't been able to get yet. <laughs> so he had a vision that he was going to fill those holes. So, anyway, any other questions about oh yes John could you, could you comment on um, a little bit more on his appropriation of uh, existing recordings from the major record companies like not only the anthology of American folk song but the uh, jazz right. 11 volume series and some right. of those things that came out of RCF. yeah yeah well again Mo 
he was accused of being a pirate. I mean, early on, he really established, though, the whole notion of reissues. I mean, before Folkways, nobody, I mean, you know, again, recordings were a commodity. And you have to realize that he was very influenced by, and so was Harry Smith, in the 40s during the shellac rationing, records were made out of shellac. The major labels actually sold the records for scrap and they, they destroyed masters of people like Bessie Smith. Nobody saw any value in that stuff. They felt that the stuff that, you know, was popular in the 20s, but now it's, you know, it's disposable. So uh, really if it hadn't been for the record collectors, people like Robert Johnson, early Louis Armstrong, Bessie Smith, those people wouldn't have, wouldn't be known today if we had left it to the commercial labels. That's point number one. But uh, he also very early on befriended a man named Frederick Ramsey Jr., who you know, John, I'm sure, who was a jazz scholar, very early champion of early jazz. And Ramsey felt that for educational reasons, if nothing else, these early recordings should be available. Again, the major companies wouldn't reissue them. It's not, not only were they, but they claimed they owned them. So, so in 1953, again, when Folkways was a very small operation and didn't have a lot of money, he put out the first significant reissue of jazz. It was an 11-volume set, and it was all of previously issued material. And a number of the major labels threatened him, threatened him with lawsuits and whatnot. And his position was that, you know, if you refuse to issue this stuff, it belongs to the American people. It belongs, it's the legacy. And consequently, after that set appeared, whatever, however you feel about it, you know, the selection or whatever, uh, the major labels did reissue. Other labels came forward, like Riverside, uh, and Blue Note originally started out doing reissues as well. And um, then Mo start because he was afraid of being sued, he, start he started a separate label called RBF, which uh, Sam Charters was very involved with. And that they started the blues revival, basically, by reissuing a lot of blues music and other musics. But, you know... It's hard to have sympathy with a major corporation like Sony, which is like 25 times removed from the original label that recorded Robert Johnson, and they claim they own it. And it's not like they're paying Robert Johnson or his heirs any money, God forbid. You know, so who knows? But anyway, he was, it was a daring thing to do, and he certainly was accused of being a pirate. Yeah. He saw. He definitely. He definitely had a very conscious philosophy that that was basically that all human expression deserved to be documented, and he saw himself as a documenter of that first and foremost. I saw. He reminded me of my Eastern European relatives as as kind of person like on a mission from God almost, you know, and that. There were times when I would go up to the offices and they'd be answering the phone, Blue Giraffe, and I'd go, what happened to Folkways? And they'd go, don't worry, we'll, we'll have that name back in a week or whatever. And, you know, so there were mysterious ways that he kept the business going that, that you probably didn't want to know about. But, 
And he never paid me royalties, he would, but he would say to me, you know, how much money do you need for college books this semester? And he would reach into the desk and give me, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. So Dave Van Ronk told a story that he'd go up there and say, Mo, I'm, I can't even afford a winter coat. And Mo would go in the back and give him a coat. You know, <laughs> kind of, you know, I don't know if that's true, but that kind of thing was, you know, legendary. But he definitely saw himself, I, he called his vision a mosaic, or sometimes he referred to it as an encyclopedia of sound. And he did articulate that idea that you don't take J out of the dictionary because it's less popular. So he definitely had a vision of what he was trying to do. And he often turned people down who, if, if he felt they were inauthentic or they didn't, or they were represented elsewhere. And the one of the most famous was Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan came up to record for Folkways, and uh, there are various variants of this story. Of, uh, at that time, there were actually two separate offices, and he may have gone to the wrong office. And you know, it, it's not exactly clear because actually, um, Folkways did put out some early Bob Dylan recordings through another small label they started called Broadside. And Broadside was the first, it was a mimeograph magazine run by a radical couple out of their basement. And in order to make the, the, the transcriptions, they recorded the people and then they took the tapes to Mo and Mo put them out even though they didn't really have anyone's approval to do that. And, and the recording qualities were poor. But Dylan allowed that to happen even after he became popular. And the, his recordings on Folkways are labeled as Blind Boy Grunt. So if you look online and on the Folkway site, by the way, every recording Mo made is digitized and available for download on the Smithsonian site. So every, you can go there, you can listen to the tree fogs, you can download it for your ringtone. And if you look under Blind Boy Grunt, you'll find the, the Bob Dylan recordings that, that he did. And supposedly, uh, but he disliked anything that was he considered artificial or fake. And he criticized Alan Lomax for many things, and they hated each other. But, well, <laughs> but he criticized Lomax's recordings of Woody Guthrie because on those recordings, Guthrie kind of played the rube. You know, he, he kind of, Guthrie was a very intelligent, middle-class guy from Oklahoma. He was not, you know, like a, a, a man of the people in any kind of... That was all... He played that up because it sold to New York audiences, but he didn't do that with Mo because Mo wouldn't put up with that and didn't believe in it. So, anyway, that's that was his philosophy, I guess. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, can you, do you have a sense of the kind of impact that um, Folkways has had by bringing um, more of these sounds to life? Oh, sure. Uh, sort of popular culture and, and what, what might have been missing? If, if oh, I mean, it's a tremendous, um, again, Woody Guthrie would have been forgotten because his, like I said, it, RCA issued one album of his in 1942 and by 1943 it was out of print. And then, as many of you know, Woody Guthrie became quite ill in the early 50s and stopped performing. And during the entire, right up to the folk revival, the only way you could hear him was through a Folkways record. 
And the only reason they were still in print was because Mo was so devoted to his music. They didn't sell. I mean, one thing you can do is go and look in the archives and see those, you know, if you think this guy was living high on the hog, you look at the sales of Lead Belly or Woody Guthrie or any of these iconic figures, they didn't sell at all initially. And even when the folk scare of the 60s or folk revival, so-called, um, it's not like he was, you know, ready to retire to Bermuda or anything. His son said they never had a car, they never went on vacation, you know, it just really... But in terms of influence, sure, I mean, there's, there's, there are countless people. I mean, Dylan talks about it in his memoirs, the, hearing these things on Folkways Records, and they changed his life, hearing Mike Seeger and deciding, I better write my own material because I'll never be as good as this guy at singing folk music. Um, Mike Seeger, Pete Seeger's half-brother, again, was in the documentary that you just saw. Um, I mean, to, to other things, I mean, uh, he put out uh, uh, the five volumes of the Watergate hearings at the time that they were on. He just recorded them off the radio again and put them out because he felt they should be put out. He put out the McCarthy hearings at the time. I mean, these were dangerous and crazy things to do, and they weren't very commercial either. So, I mean, I see him as not influential just not only on music, but on society in a very broad way. I mean, the, the, the Rainforest record really was a composition like a John Cage composition. You know, it was, it was, a, it, it was a sound composition. He, he had another idea which didn't take off, but I think is a wonderful idea, was he was going to put out annually a record by subscription of leftover sounds. Just like interesting sounds that came in, but he had nowhere else to put them. And he actually did a couple of volumes of that. Uh, he was the, he, he worked very, he put Studs Terkel on the map. He put out a lot of his radio shows before Studs Terkel was famous. He was very big on oral history. Um, I don't know. You could you could go on and on and on with the with the with the influence the label has had and is still having in music. Sure. Well, thank you for being here tonight at the National Portrait Gallery for bringing his legacy into folk music. Thank you. Thank you.